Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And Tyler, you have more movies to talk about than I do, so uh, you should probably kick things off. All right, so we're going to start with a movie that I actually watched uh, a a few weeks ago, um, but has been uh, under... Uh, an sort of an unofficial embargo um they just kind of gay they just kind of said hey don't don't write anything about it or say anything about it until i don't know mid-august like they just they didn't give a lot of a lot of specific dates but anyway uh the film is uh directed by david darg and price james and it is you cannot kill david arquette which is a documentary about uh, david arquette's uh wrestling career at least uh, in the last uh, few years and okay it's interesting it's entertaining mm-hmm. but i still uh view it with suspicion because it's a documentary about, that follows a celebrity trying to do a thing which and even though the thing he's doing is very difficult and even though uh the i'm not sure if i would go so far, far as to call it a vanity project because certainly in the first uh, 20 to 30 minutes, it shows him struggling mightily. I mean, uh, he, he like uh, drops in on uh, like a backyard um, wrestling show. Show doesn't even sound right. And they're like, wait, wait, what? What? And then they just destroy him. Like they just uh-huh. totally take him out and, and all that. Um, and so it makes him look it makes him look kind of bad or weak or whatever it is. And the whole thing makes him look a little bit crazy. Um, and so it's like, okay, so he's being very vulnerable. He's allowing himself to look bad. But then as the, as the film goes on, as you might expect, he like buckles down and trains and loses a, a noticeable amount of weight and he looks good by the end. And so all of the stuff at the beginning that would seem to look like, uh, seem to look what would you call it like unself-conscious whatever you want to say okay it winds up being like oh well that just means that you you appreciate it more at the end it's like a before photo uh, of weight loss like if you if you lose the weight then you're perfectly fine with that before photo getting out there because you look how good you look now oh right you know what i mean yeah and so it really it's one of those things where it's I find it valuable uh, in in a few ways. One is just showing the world of wrestling. And I don't mean purely professional wrestling, but like people are so passionate about it. And it's something that, I mean, I liked it when I was younger and I have a certain, I have a respect for it now, but I mean, for some people it is just their, their lives. And that includes David Arquette. Like he loves this thing so much and would love to do it. Um, But because he's a celebrity and because the, you know, the, the camera crew gets like unfettered access to him and talks to, you know, his siblings, talks to his ex-wife and all that. Uh, and so it really is comprehensive, but the whole thing does feel like a, I don't know. It feels like a publicity, not a publicity stunt. Uh, it feels like a promotional video, you know? Um, like I'm, I didn't see that, uh, Jim Carrey, Andy Kaufman thing, but I, I wrote my review, which won't post uh, for a few days. But um, I also compared it to that film, uh, Conan O'Brien Can't Stop, which is, which is, again, perfectly fine. I enjoy the work of Conan O'Brien and David Arquette, and I enjoy Jim Carrey as, as Andy Kaufman. But in all of them, it really does seem like just a, a puff piece. And this, brutal though it may be, feels kind of like that where you, when you get glimpses into wrestling, when you get glimpses into this entire subculture, that's when the film is at its most interesting, but up and, but beyond that, when it's, when it's just like this, when it just focuses on David Arquette, I respect him and he's, and he's putting in the work, but I just wonder, I just can't help but feel like this whole thing 
that the more I admire it, the more I'm playing into something <laughs> and, and I don't like feeling that way. So that might just be me. Other people might really enjoy it, but I do, I don't know. I'd be, I'd be more interested if this was like a nobody uh, who right. comes from nowhere and then goes to do this amazing thing. But because it's somebody who's already famous, it just feels like, yeah, that's why this is being made. What if they did a, uh, Remember like the movie comedian where they, yeah. it's like, you've got Jerry Seinfeld, but then you've also got, uh, Orny Adams, uh, who's now I think, has a career, but, uh, yeah. you know, was a uh, much earlier and unheard of at the time. Uh, so like- it was a David Arquette and some like aspiring, uh, uh, professional wrestler i think i would like that more uh because it does because it does show because then you have the i this realization <clears throat> like if they like uh, early on when he does go to one of these backyard wrestling things it would have been cool if the film then follows one of those guys as well as david mm-hmm. arquette and you and then it shows then it's a film all about the the democratic nature of wrestling that it doesn't matter if you're a big star or a no a, a nobody you still have to put in the work you know like I'm perfect. I, that I would find more interesting, but, but it doesn't do that. And so it just feels, I don't know. I just, I appreciate the access, but the whole thing feels kind of gross to me. All right. Uh, next up in the ongoing, uh, saga of my wife showing me movies that she liked when she was a kid. Oh, fun. Uh, I watched the movie that my, my mom loved when I was a kid and I never got around to, to seeing it. Uh, the, and that's, uh, from 1991, John Avnet's fried green tomatoes. Oh yeah. I, I've seen that one. Um, I most, I, I really liked it. Um, it's got some, uh, problems. I think the, um, uh, the, there's, there's two like named black characters in the movie and the way that they are just, positioned as not quite like the quote-unquote like magical negro stereotype right but like they're just there to like they <laughs> these gentle uh kind black people yeah. liking the two white leads is just supposed to be further proof that the white those two white leads are the good ones yeah like they've, I mean? got like, the, yeah. they've got the approval of this demographic uh, surely yeah yeah uh, when they run like, for office they'll be fine uh, yeah um and I, I i shouldn't have or maybe i shouldn't have led with that because that's not uh, a, a major part of the movie but it was something that um that, that stood out out to me but um I didn't know that the movie, like all I knew about the movie was the part that where, where Kathy Bates runs her car into the parked car in the parking lot. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. That's like, yeah. I have more insurance. Uh, yeah. And so I didn't know that the movie is a period piece. I didn't realize mm-hmm. that was part of like the framing device and that, that most of the movie is um, uh, Jessica Tandy's character telling a story about two women. One of which, like, I feel like, uh, I don't know if it was ever like I can't get into the head of like mainstream audiences at the time, but like, was anyone ever actually surprised when it turns out that Jessica Tandy's character is Mary Stuart Masterson's character? Like, it seems it seemed very clear to me like immediately. Uh, yeah, so much so that like because I think I've I've seen it a few times. Jen really likes it, and um, I think the first time I saw it, which I think I saw I watched it with my parents, and when Kathy Bates is like surprised, I remember thinking like, Oh, really? Right. Yeah. I'm just like, Oh, she's dimmer than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, it's, uh, um, she's got like the same last name and also like you're watching the story she's telling and, and, and if yeah. she's not, Iggy, then who is she in this story? Yeah, if they gave Iggy like uh, a precocious, like younger sister who shows up right. only occasionally, then it's like, oh, okay, it's probably right. her. Oh, wait, um, no, it isn't. It's a, they twisted it around on me. But uh, I think so, yeah, some of the movie I think is there's a corniness to it, but like, like a lot of melodrama, I, I like corny movies sometimes, especially yeah. when you've got this good a cast. Mm-hmm. They're just, uh, yeah, Kathy Bates, Jessica Taney, Mary and Mary Louise Parker is fantastic. I mentioned uh, Cicely Tyson, Chris O'Donnell, uh, uh, Gaylord Sartain is an actor that I like. Oh yeah. Uh, I had to look up. I was like, I know him, but I didn't realize that, uh, what I knew him from, uh, Gary Basaraba from, uh, mm-hmm. the Irishman. 
uh, isn't it Lois Smith from everything? Uh, it's, it's, Lois Smith keeps, uh, I, I'm trying to remember, like, she keeps showing up in stuff that I've been watching since the pandemic yeah. started. She was on a couple, two or three episodes of On Becoming a God in Central Florida, and uh, and now I'm forgetting, like, what else, but I, Lois Smith keeps popping up. Uh, Richard Reilly is in it. Uh, Grace Zabriskie is in it. It, does, it doesn't stop. Constance Shulman for fans of Orange is the New Black. Nick Searcy is in this movie. Right. Um, and then uh, there was one other I wanted to mention. Um, Who's the, I forget, who uh, plays the uh, abusive husband? Uh, that's Nick Searcy. That's Nick Searcy. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then an actor that I recognized him immediately, but I had to look it up, uh, who plays the, the the sheriff from the other county who keeps showing up to investigate the murder of uh someone well i guess mm-hmm. we know the character's name is frank bennett it's literally in the first sure. scene like that's uh but anyway um so i was like oh i recognize this guy and i realized that what i recognized him from he's in one episode of the west wing but it happens to be one of my favorite episodes of the west wing and one of many people's favorite episodes of the west wing is called in excelsis deo it's the episode where um a uh, homeless Korean war veteran dies with a wearing a coat that belonged to Toby because Toby had given the coat to, Mm. to charity. Do you remember this? I don't remember it. um, So the cops tracked down Toby because his card was in the coat or whatever. Uh, And Toby ends up using his sort of like position at the white house to find out who this guy was and to get him like an official military Hmm. burial. Anyway, I've watched this episode so many times. There's that there's an episode where he finds the guy's brother who's also a homeless man and has to tell his brother, you know, your brother froze to death the other night. Oh yes, Um, that's right. I remember this. And so that actor plays the brother is in this. I recognized him immediately. Like, um, like, Oh, I know who that is. I've seen the episode so many times, but I didn't know his name. I looked up his name, this guy's name, or at least his stage name. I looked this up, not his real name is first name. Raynor R A Y N O R last name. Shine. Rain or shine. <laughs> oh man, him and uh, Rocket's Red Glare should. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah, his real name is Rainer Johnston, which is not as fun, but uh, he goes by Rainer Shine professionally. Um, so yeah, uh, Fragrant Tomato. So I'm getting, I've been dancing around the main thing that I couldn't believe I didn't know, and that I think I get the impression maybe a lot of people didn't know because sophistication has changed and what we expect from stories changes. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like how uh, I was talking uh, a few months ago about that uh, uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer silent film called Michael, uh, which is like seen as like, oh, it's queer coded or whatever. Sure. But like from today's lens, there's no other there's no other explanation other than like, uh, yeah, this guy's this painter is in love with his assistant. That's clearly yeah. what's happening here. And I feel like Fragrant Tomatoes is so obviously a story about two lesbians that, uh, that it's weird that people that that that's like it 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 only in retrospect that i go like oh yeah i guess we never actually saw them like profess their love for one another or like make out or anything but it's so like the scene where iggy goes and like just takes a honeycomb out of a tree right. in a bee's nest like that is clearly like a courtship scene that she's mm-hmm. bringing mary louise parker this this honey and based on every movie i've ever seen the way that mary louise parker's character is reacting is clearly her falling in love with iggy that's like film language tells us that that's what's happening here and and you would have had to and i, I just feel like in 1991 maybe audiences were so not expecting to see a gay romance in a mainstream Hollywood movie that people just didn't accept it as such. It's, I feel like it was an entire culture of um, Carmela Soprano refusing to acknowledge the homosexual undertones in Billy Bud. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and I and also think the episodes I've watched a million times. I also think that it, it also, it is informed in, in, by like the other movies that were released around that time. And there was like, there was like a glut of American movies about female friendship. Um, there like was Thelma and Louise, Steel Magnolias, oh, yeah. uh, like all around that oh, sure, time. Yeah. And so, yeah, when you watch it now, you see that like, it's, it's both subtle and not, you could definitely see an argument being made either way. Um, but uh, 
but yeah, it's definitely also, like there's so many I, ways in which Mary Stuart Masterton's character, Edgy, is mm-hmm. sort of, I guess I'll use the word again, coded as yeah. as lesbian, as like not being interested in men, not being traditionally feminine. Yeah. And all kind of things. like tomboyish. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, a very specific type of eccentric, for lack of a better word, uh, mm-hmm. as far as that that era. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely it when I when I um, uh, when I taught a class last year about um, different groups within the United States and like films that are are made about that experience, um, I had a few weeks to talk about uh, queer cinema, which again I just. <laughs> I said I have such a hard time saying it because I'm old enough now that the word queer was just inherently bad. It's just a th- right. but now it's. I mean, obviously, if you yell it at someone, it still is. Sure, sure, but yeah, you know what? If you yell, if you yell most things at people, it's it's going to have a negative connotation. Um, but uh, but yeah, and so and I incorporated this this into it because it is the kind of thing that like as you get older or as you just become more fluent in the language in the cinematic language you're like oh no i've absolutely um but uh yeah and and yeah wonderful casts uh probably the first thing i saw kathy bates in now that i think about it huh um uh last thing i'll say about fragrant tomatoes and i won't spoil this you have you have seen enough to probably know what i'm talking about Mm -hmm. um the not the not the end of the movie in modern day, but the last part of the flashback is like suddenly becomes like a kind of like a horror movie. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was like oh yeah, it, it turns real gruesome, and it was like very off putting to me. It was like I, I said on Twitter, it was like realizing the doctor who just treated you was actually an escaped mental patient in a lab coat. That's yeah. what like like wait the whole I was watching the whole movie and there was this like really macabre thing going on underneath the surface and i don't know it feels like a an odd odd choice i feel like if the if the whole if every aspect of the flashback um felt heightened like maybe over like magical realist or something yeah, like yeah. That. yeah um or at least like just incredibly idealized where everything is sun dappled then suddenly when it makes this turn into another genre it does it's not so jarring everything about the past is is takes on the tone of someone telling a story and like really playing up the, the different tones and that sort of thing. So, um, okay. So next for me, I'm not going to spend very long on this cause okay. it's kind of a, in its own way, it's kind of a nothing movie. Um, it's a documentary called necessary evil super villains of DC comics. I was, uh, <laughs> sc- I was scrolling through, uh, uh, HBO max and I found this, which is like, an hour and a half, maybe even longer than that. And it, uh, it's narrated by Christopher Lee and it brings in, you know, you've got Guillermo del Toro. You've got like a lot of people, uh, that have been in some way associated with like DC or Warner brothers or something like that. I mean, you've got like Zack Snyder being interviewed, but also obviously like Kevin Conroy, uh, who voiced Batman, Andrea Romano, who cat, who was the, 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 voice director of Batman, the animated series, Bruce, Tim and, and, um, Paul Dini and all that. So it's, they brought, you know, they, they, they spared no expense in talking about, uh, Oh, Hellboy is vertigo. Is that what the uh, connection uh, with Cameron is? Uh, they, the, the film came out in 2013. So when they, when he's talking at the bottom, it says like Pacific Rim. I don't know if that's Warner brothers or they just thought, Hey, it's an opportunity to bring in uh, Guillermo del Toro and have him talk about comic books. It's not necessarily just DC. It's just Warner brothers stuff. It's, I was just trying to figure out what Guillermo del Toro's connection to DC was. But yeah, I, guess, I don't know. I guess it's, Hellboy was a Vertigo comic, if I'm remembering correctly. You would be the one to know this because I, I don't uh, keep track of that sort of thing. I think it could just be like, well, we have the opportunity to talk to Guillermo del Toro. We will, we will take it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's interesting. Here's what it is. Uh, as you know, when I, when I go to um, Comic-Con or WonderCon, and every time I go to a panel that seeks to talk sort of academically or would seem to talk academically about a certain type of movie or a certain type of character or whatever it is. Uh, I'm always disappointed. 
because everything it's, it, it's completely superficial. Maybe it goes, it delves one layer deep and that's it. What I really like about this is both in the narration and in the, the, the comments made by the, uh, you know, the interviewees, uh, it really delves into why, you know, supervillains, in this case, they focus in on DC comics, um, why they're so appealing, what they can represent, the vitality, uh, the, the, the necessity of them uh, in regards to like the hero's journey and that sort of thing. And, and I feel like if you were, if you were a writer or if you were a storyteller at all, this granted it's, it's being very specific to, you know, DC villains, but a lot of what it's saying is can be applied to, to all villains that, you know, in something in a, in a superhero movie or TV show or whatever uh, the superhero is reactive you know, the superhero doesn't really have a goal outside of stopping the villain. Mm -hmm. And that is very much, a di that's, it's something that's unique to the genre because in, in almost any other uh, narrative, the hero has a goal and then the uh, villain or antagonist, whatever, uh, gets in the way or actively tries to stop it. Whereas this is very much the opposite. And so I find that very interesting. And my, my knowledge of certain DC characters like Green Lantern and Sinestro and all that, like is pretty limited. And so this helped me to understand them a little bit. And, you know, it's, it's pretty disposable, but I, it's exactly what I wanted it to be. Like I, I had time to kill. It was later on in the evening. I didn't want to watch anything real. And so I threw this on and I know that sounds mean, um, but it's, it's well-written and it's very interesting from an academic standpoint. Like it's, it's not just unlike, you know, uh, unlike uh, you cannot kill David Arquette, uh, this doesn't feel quite so promotional. Um, whereas, you know, going in, you'd think like, oh, so is this like the special feature of a, of a Blu-ray or something? Um, but no, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting, at least for me. And I feel like uh, if somebody's a comic book fan, uh, they would probably enjoy this. And it, it might not tell you anything that you don't already think, but the way it, it zeroes in on certain characters like uh, Lex Luthor and, and all that is, is interesting to me. Um, so yeah, I was happy. I watched it. It was a good way to pass the time. And I felt like I, I had a, a deeper understanding and deeper appreciation for DC and villains in general in the meantime. Um, okay. Uh, um, Hellboy is dark horse. Not dark so there's horse. no, oh, there's okay. no DC connection. All right. Apparently according to the Wikipedia entry that I just, uh, read Mike Mignola or Mignola. I never know how to say his name. The oh, guy yeah. Who created Hellboy pitched it to DC, but they didn't want the word hell in the title. And he, uh, I could see uh, that wouldn't back down from that, I guess. Um, okay. So here's what I'm going to do for my next movie. Cause I'm not sure if you've seen this or not. It okay. seems like something you, it seems very much like a movie that Tyler, that young Tyler Smith would have watched. Okay. <laughs> um, but I had fun reading the cast list of, of fried green tomatoes. I'm just going to read this very impressive, uh, cast list from a movie from 1990 and 1990. I'm see if you can tell me, uh, um, I'm going to do it. Uh, um, Douglas movie style. Go from the end of sure. the time to be, uh, uh, okay. Radon Chong, Robert yeah. Klein, James Remar, Mark Margolis, Alice Drummond, William Hickey, David Johansson, uh, Julianne Moore, Steve Buscemi. Uh, man, oh man, this thing is a who's who of character <laughs> actors. Christian Slater, and top of the IMDb cast list, Debbie Harry. <laughs> is it pump up the volume? No, it is an anthology horror movie from 1990 oh, called okay. Tales from the Dark Side of the Movie. I have not seen it. Okay, I, I thought maybe with the... Um, uh, uh, I, I feel like that era of horror is kind of uh up your alley and also the david johansson thing i thought made of uh, sure made, sure uh made you watch it but um i have it, seen a surprising number of david johansson movies including yeah. <laughs> candy mountain and car 54 where are you uh, <laughs> i never saw car 54 where are you you're fine um but uh, yeah, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie is a uh, new, it's, it's uh, coming out, uh, I'm not sure if it's out as this recording or not, um, uh, from Scream Factory, uh, a new Blu-ray, uh, terrific looking uh, Blu-ray. And yeah, I didn't know, I, it's, a, it's a fun movie. I think it's, 
I, I could see it be described as kind of hit or miss because it seems to be about different types of horror. It's three different stories plus a wraparound story that Debbie Harry is in. Um, I guess that's why she gets top billing is she's sure. like the beginning and the end of the movie. But um, uh, uh, yeah, so I, uh, it's three different stories and it seems like they're different uh, genres, uh, I guess. And some of them are based on um, uh, existing short stories. But the, the first one um, is... Uh, about a bunch of uh, a group of uh universities like uh what are some archaeology anthropology like students and uh a uh uh one of them uh sort of psychopathic uh um the one who's picked on and the nerd he's he snaps he's played by steve Semi, and he buys a mummy and uh controls it to uh murder all his classmates who have been torturing him um uh the second one david johansson plays a professional hitman whom a uh, wealthy recluse has hired to murder a black cat that this hmm. recluse is is convinced is responsible for the, the deaths of uh all the people around him uh his driver and his sister like all these people have have died these mysterious deaths and he's convinced it's this black cat who keeps showing up in my house and i want you david johansson professional hitman to <laughs> murder this cat so it's uh I feel like the film would have done better if that was the title yeah so it's david johansson versus a black cat in like a spooky old mansion um it's very Ma- cool mouse hunt type hijinks ensue yeah um and then uh the the third one is maybe my favorite but the least like except for when it gets overtly horror it's the least overtly horror in which james remar plays a um struggling artist uh who has an encounter with some sort of otherworldly being and then uses that and in- the inspiration for that encounter to for his new art and becomes a very very successful artist mm-hmm. there's more to it than that but i don't want to give stuff away um uh the the main selling point here and uh, apart from the the cast being uh really really good and full of all kinds of like weird like uh uh i guess uh new york cool kids like you know like debbie harry stewart i mean sure. david johansson like there's a there's an there's an aspect of of cool to this movie and then of course robert klein who is cooler than robert klein <laughs> um um but the other selling point is that the effects are really gnarly. Uh, mm. I think, I don't know why, I guess because Tales from the Dark Side was a made-for-TV thing that was, like, more watered down than, like, a Tales from the Crypt. Sure. I was expecting something a little more like, oh, this will be a more family-friendly version of horror. But, like, when things get bloody, they get real bloody and, and real graphic, and there's some really good uh, some really good effects um and uh yeah definitely if you're into this kind of stuff uh worth picking up the blu-ray what did you watch all right so i watched thor freudenthal's words on bathroom walls um and i was surprised by how much i liked it in fact i found it very uh, very touching it is not a perfect film it is about a, a young man played by Jar- charlie Plummer who has been diagnosed with schizophrenia and he uh, sees things that aren't there. He hears things that aren't there. And he's trying to keep that secret from his classmates because uh, in his previous school, uh, people found out and he was, of course, ostracized and all that. So he goes to this new school, which um, is a Catholic school. And uh, the, the head priest or whatever you call it uh, is played by Andy Garcia, who's of course always reliable. And uh, the, the head nun is played by Beth Grant playing the type of role that Beth Grant would play as a school official. Um, And, uh, but uh, Molly Parker plays his, his mom, a good cast all around. This is the, that's the theme of this episode. Good casts. Very much so. Yeah. Um, And so, I was a little bit iffy because when you see the, the, the hallucinations, not unlike a beautiful mind, each one, one is played by Anna Sophia uh, Robb and she's, you know, like this hippy, hippy dippy girl who is very positive and seems to represent the romantic in him. And then, 
uh, Devin Bostic plays like this horn dog and he is that part of him. And then there's this other character, I forget the name of the actor, okay. but he is sort of like a bodyguard type. You know, he's, he wears like a track suit and has a baseball bat and he's the guy who will try to protect Charlie from uh, Charlie Parker, uh, Charlie Plummer's character, pardon me, um, from danger. And so each one of them is kind of adorable in their own way. And I remember being like, ah, this, this feels very, um, very safe. But then there's this other hallucination that is not humanoid. It is like this black smoke with this terrifying voice that all, that only ever says the worst things. Like it interprets the world in the worst way. It is constantly pushing the character, Adam, that's the Charlie Plummer character, uh, constantly pushing him to like kill himself and all that. And I was surprised. I first off, I'll say this, this reminded me so much of Love, Simon, uh, which is okay. to say you have a high schooler who has a secret that other kids are not really, you know, not really going to understand. Um, and over the course of the film, like that secret, he, he can't keep it to himself anymore. And so, and it feels about as, as facile as that when it comes right down to it. But I, I'm okay with that because they're both, these aren't meant for like grownups. These are meant for, for a, a younger audience. And so the, the melodramatic aspects, the simplified aspects are probably are a little bit more acceptable. And frankly, I was just happy that it was willing to, to head down this path in the first place and, and suggest that, um, that the, it's so easy when some, when you find out that somebody is, certifiably crazy you know like when someone has schizophrenia you could say they're crazy and that is you shouldn't you shouldn't but <laughs> that is the that is that is where you that's where the conversation ends which is like well you know you can't trust anything this person says or anything like that because they see things that aren't there and all that uh but this film says like yeah this this guy didn't ask for this. He is still able to live with it, provided other people let him live with it and right and and see him underneath the disease um, or recon And I, I really appreciated that. It really it sort of destigmatizes mental illness. And it also talks about why mental illness is often stigmatized, you know, because it can change a person's personality and it's hard to know who's talking to you right now. Um, and I found it. It really, as someone who listeners know, as someone who deals with depression, and sometimes uh, that depression uh, makes me think very incorrect things, but boy, they sound right to me in the moment. And it's very, you know, and, and thank God for, the, for people who are able to see through the, the, the darkness and see the, the actual person underneath. And that's very much what this film is about. And I was really surprised by how much I liked it. Yes, it is still a little oversimplified. You know, it's not, it's no take shelter. I'll say that, uh, or mm. David Cronenberg's spider or any, or, or something as, as complex as that. But I'm glad that it exists. I'm glad that it's willing to go as dark as it does uh, at times. And I think the cast in general does a great job. Charlie Plummer, especially, he's an actor that I've I've liked for a little while, but I haven't seen him in much. I never saw Lean on Pete. I've heard he's wonderful in that. Um, but uh, but here, Did you like say he, Charlie Parker again, I might have yeah, because yeah. there's Molly Parker and right. Charlie Plummer. But yeah, Charlie Plummer, pardon me. He uh, he plays the character with a with a, a delicacy, like someone who is you can tell he is just careful all the time because he doesn't want to tip off to anybody else what's going on, nor does he want to tip, uh, you know, uh, spark something inside his mind that could make things go bad. Like he is always very careful and it's, it's a very specific type of performance that, that rang very true to me. And so, uh, words on bathroom walls, uh, I, I highly recommend it. But here's, um, here's the thing I want to, before I move on to my next one, I want to, uh, then I, I didn't run this by you first. I'm not sure how you feel about it, but the nature of what we do in review, reviewing movies is that right now we're getting screeners to, or, or sure. you know, links or whatever to review movies that are opening theatrically. And sure. so 
I want to make it clear when we say something like you say, you highly recommend words on bathroom right. walls. That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I, again, this is why I don't want to speak for Tyler personally. I don't recommend going to movie theaters right now. I know some of them are open mm-hmm. and more of them are opening. Um, uh, I think uh, sustained periods of time indoors, especially in an unventilated room, like a movie theater, sure. we weren't cohabitating with people are taking off their masks to eat and stuff. It's, it, it's it's something I very much don't recommend. So, to me, again, I'm not going to speak for Tyler, but when I say I recommend a movie that is opening in theaters, um, don't take that to mean that I recommend you go to a theater. I recommend seeing it when it is safe to see it. Is is what I'm saying. Yeah, and and I think yeah, and I actually don't know what the what the release model is for Words on Bathroom well, that's Walls. That's what made me think I of it is because yeah. the um, the commercial, the TV spot I saw for Words on Bathroom Walls played up the fact that it was like one okay. of the first movies back in theaters, and I and that okay. that that put a sour taste in my mouth uh, uh, about the movie. So I'm glad to hear that uh, the movie's good because the advertising campaign made me um, uh, not not like it. It's sort of like I don't know if you've seen if you watch. Uh, hulu uh they were you know you see the same five ads over and over again for a month at a time and there was an applebee's commercial that was like welcome back to applebee's at a time when like cases were still skyrocketing you know right um and hotspots were blowing up all over the country and it made me like not that i had a particularly warm feeling toward applebee's to begin with i don't think i've been to an applebee's since i was in high school um but uh they haven't gotten any better (laughs) but uh um um uh man, I was, I, that story is not for public consumption. I'll that off my, um, but uh, uh, yeah, so I, I guess I just wanted to say that like we're going to be at a time where I'm like, you know, I'm going to start asking for screeners for movies that are that are coming out uh, and are going to be playing in theaters, and I that yeah. doesn't mean that I recommend people see the movie in theaters. And I think being in in California, Los Angeles, especially where things are not opening back up, uh, theaters are not opening back up. Um, I think that has caused me to just assume that, like, oh, well, Words on Bathroom Walls is going to be available online somewhere to to rent. Um, and I guess that is maybe not the case, or it might be a day, or is day, it a like, combination? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and I will say, I mean, if it were me. Uh, and even if I lived in a state where maybe like the, the cases are, are, are where everything's a little bit flatter, um, even then I think I would probably wait a little while mm-hmm. to, to go back to the theater, but that's me. Uh, if somebody, if somebody feels safe, then you know what, go right ahead. I'd feel a hell of a lot safer in general. If much as I may enjoy concessions, it does feel like theaters should not be selling concessions. I know that's how they make a lot of their money. money, So, um, so I realize they're not going to do that, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, of course you need to take your mask off to drink and eat. So it seems to me that you eliminate that so that it's, this is as safe a thing as can happen, but Again, yeah. If it's, you live in a place where you've got these, because the, drive-in theaters are showing a lot of first-run movies, sure. there's sort of like um, new locations of, of drive-in theaters. Like that's that's definitely something that I uh, yeah. recommend. I actually, I didn't talk about it in the podcast, but my wife and I went to see, um, not a, not a first-run movie, we went to a drive-in screening of My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really because of Big Big Fat Greek Wedding fans. It was mostly yeah. just like, we were looking for what was playing that weekend yeah and we wanted to end that way and uh uh yeah a movie i hadn't seen since the theater um i'd say mostly mostly holds up i mean it's real corny but uh because i'm i'm jen and i have have talked about like drive-in theaters and stuff and i have not been to a drive-in in many many years well this and wasn't it, no, an actual like we didn't go out to like uh like i'm trying to think um where where they actually have them more park maybe has one or or no, no montclair has one and like yeah. we didn't go out to an actual this was at the um the americana at brand in, okay, in glendale yeah. the the top of the parking garage they turned that into uh, a drive-in movie theater what is i have to assume the audio i don't know what the audio situation is but i have to assume it's not good uh, no, it is. You um, you can tune in on it and listen to it on your car radio. Oh, oh, um, okay. Or they had speakers. We kind of like because it was a warm night, so we kind of like cracked the windows. Sure. 
um, to get a little bit of a, of a mixture, but, um, and my wife has a hybrid. So that's good. A lot of people, apparently you've heard a lot of stories about people's batteries dying because sure. they have them in, you know, uh, with the radio running, but uh, a hybrid will sort of like cycle on its own. So you don't <clears> have to worry about that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was not cheap, but, uh, it came with, like when you got there, they handed you a bag of candy and popcorn. And mm-hmm. then you also had the option to buy dinner, essentially, as opposed yeah. to just concessions. They could buy dinner where you like uh, order on the phone and then someone like brings it to your, to your car. Um, oh, it sounds like a, it sounds like a nice evening. It really was. Yeah. I, w- I would, I would do it again. Again, it wasn't cheap, but uh, sure. Uh, I would yeah. do it again. All right. Yeah. So um, but that's, it- but you know what? I wasn't even thinking about that. So I do appreciate you bringing that up. And uh, it's obviously, you know, you and I can't go to the theater, but if you're somebody that can, uh, I, I won't judge you if you determine that this is an okay thing, but I would say just in general, eh, exercise caution. Yeah. Um, apparently, I don't know if it's been for movies, but um, because it's like, coming up on M it's like Emmy voting season. Mm. Apparently there have been like for your consideration, TV screenings at drive-ins that are not like open to the public that are like, uh, um, like press and industry only, uh, to go watch the, the TV episodes that, that they want them to vote for, for the Emmys. That's weird. Um, so it would be interesting if there were eventually like, uh, like press screenings that were driving. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, am I up next? I've completely forgot. I, I believe so. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I have one more and then you have one more. Mm-hmm. I, if I'm doing the math right. Uh, yeah. I won't spend long on this. I watched another uh, new Blu-ray from impulse uh, pictures. They put out 1972's love hunter, which is a Japanese uh, movie from the Nikatsu studio, which is, it's more interesting as like an historical artifact. Nikatsu is like, is the oldest studio in, in Japan. It still exists to this day, but I guess after their sort of golden age of the fifties and sixties, in the 70s and 80s they basically nikatsu scraped by financially by just putting out uh what i'll charitably call erotica um, sure. <laughs> but it's just, uh, uh, essentially softcore porn movies and so love hunter is one of the earliest one of those from 1972 um and i will say like judging it by its own merits as a bit of like cheesy 70s japanese softcore porn um it's a lot of fun uh it's about the this uh there's this college student uh i know you and i have talked about doing an episode on passive protagonists i'm not sure that i would get around to mentioning love hunter but it really is this like (laughs) there's this this college man who has a girlfriend that he like is into but she's like virginal and chaste and she doesn't want to bring their relationship to the next level whereas and then he comes into the the crosses paths with this predatory older like bored socialite woman who uh, is a total hedonist and so this uh college student is torn between this uh young woman that he uh, has feelings for and this older woman who uh wants to uh, drain his ball sack at every opportunity. <laughs> is, that the, is that the only way you could think of to phrase it? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and so it's uh, yeah, it's cheesy early seventies fun. The, 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 the fashions are a lot of fun. There's a lot of great, like sort of high angle, low angle, close up. Like uh, it, it, it's a fun movie for what it is, but I'm not going to uh, recommend it. I think of you as, uh, despite being very punk and everything, uh, I, I think of you as someone who, in the way you phrase things, is a little bit, uh, like, prudish. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't mean that, like, as, as a judgment, but, like, I know that you steer away from, like, sex jokes and scatological yeah. humor yes. and that sort of thing. So when you throw something like that out there, it really but, throws me for a loop. Here's what it is, because sometimes I include stuff like that in my movie reviews that i write too it's in a way it's not me saying that so much as it's me giving you the impression of what yes the, how the movie presents it yes i so, i i do the same thing which is yeah. like if if so the yeah, movie's like a, a big that I, yeah that's not a phrase that i would like 
use yeah. like voluntarily or think is a fun thing to use. Yeah. I just think it, it describes, it gives you the impression of the movie. The film is speaking through you. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Okay. Uh, so, okay. Last, last for me is a film that you mentioned uh, last week. Sorry. Uh, with- I, I just shouted the name because I, we've heard from listeners before that sometimes in the movie journal, we mentioned the name of the movie once and then oh, we yeah. talk for 10 minutes and they like, forget what the name of the movie was so like i've gotten into the habit of trying to state the name of the movie again at the end love hunter yeah (laughs) um Uh, okay, so next uh, for me uh, is Phil Goldstone's The Sin of Nora Moran from 1933, a film that you watched. Yeah, uh, that, that nice, uh, very good-looking Blu-ray uh, reissue. Um, I also love not to not to um, uh, uh, get too into overpraising the film detective. The film detective does, does good work, and I but I like that the Blu-ray case is black. Yes, I don't know. I feel like feels this classy. Th- yeah, th- this thing of Blu-ray cases being blue seems like an on-the-nose decision. It's sort of like how our uh, home video reviews are called home video hovel because I thought it was funny once, and now yeah. like a decade later, we're kind of stuck with saying home video hovel. And I feel like the blue case for Blu-ray review for Blu-rays is the same thing. It's like. Yep, we get it. But now does every movie yeah. have to have a blue case now? And so, yeah, any any distribution company that chooses to avoid that, like, uh, I mean, obviously Criterion, but then also um, Twilight Time, like it's clear. Yeah. Um, and it just feels, it feels classier. Yeah. As opposed to like, you could get like a really nice movie, but it still has that blue, like a really yeah. like classy movie, but it still has that blue thing. It's like, ah, I don't care for this. Yeah, I remember um, when, back when, um, uh, 20th Century Fox every year at Comic Con used to put out Comic Con like uh, editions sure. of like they weren't new like transfers or anything or new special features but it was new packaging that said like Comic Con exclusive or whatever they were limited edition and those all had they had like cardboard sleeves with the new art and then they had black cases yeah. uh, I- inside so that's how I've got my spiffy black case uh, uh, Sounds of the Lambs and Super Troopers. <laughs> I, I remember a long time ago, I had an idea that still appeals to me somehow, which is I would, I would buy like, I don't know, a thousand of those like clear Blu-ray cases. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I would uh, just print off, I would, I would design a generic uh, slip uh, sleeve and on the front, it would just have like the name of the movie on the back it would have the description of the movie. And then on the side, it just, and then I would just every DVD or Blu-ray, I would put everything in one of those. Yeah. So like my, it would be like the grocery store and repo man. Yeah. Yeah. Like my, my uh, movie wall would look very monolithic and it's just like, yes, but uh, everything is equal now, <laughs> you know, somehow. I, I don't know. I, I like that. I like that a lot. It, I don't know why it appeals to me, but uh, I know you but, did. Yeah. I, I don't know if you still you used to have some like backup Blu-ray cases. I do. Yes. I remember my uh, poem is a naked person criterion Blu-ray. The, the case got crushed in the mail mm-hmm. uh, and you gave me a replacement. Yeah, I do still have uh, a few of them because you never know. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the sin of uh, Norm Moran. I really, I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, you talked about it last week, so I don't want to, I don't want to go into too much detail. And my uh, review is available at battleshipretention.com um, under the home video hovel heading. So thanks for that, David. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a melodrama, and the the dialogue uh, certainly is that as well, where characters are constantly making declarative statements. Uh, re, you know establishing and reestablishing who you are, what you feel and what your relationship is to other, the other characters. Um, and you know, it's, it's shot in a way. I was 1933. Uh, you're not getting a lot of close-ups, not a lot of cross cutting. Um, it's uh, apparently based on a play and I believe that, uh, completely. Um, and so it's just a lot of like, you know, medium two shots, but I, I found the, the film, really engaging uh for a few reasons one i think the whole cast does a really great job with the the lead actress zita johan i don't know if if you're if you say it that way um but uh i think she's marvelous as uh, as nora um this is this woman who has just her entire life like 
her fate has been in the hands of other people. And so when she's in this position to sort of save herself, and I won't go into the details, but like to sort of save herself, um, she chooses not to. Uh, and when people are, are, are saying like, no, you, you, by all means, you should do this thing. She just seems happy that she's able to make a choice about her own life. Uh, and so there's a real vulnerability there, but that's not to suggest the character is necessarily naive. I think she's very aware of the world and, uh, and, but is kind of a wounded person. And so I really like that performance, but as you predicted to me, the, the structure of the film is mm -hmm. what is really uh, really fascinating and exciting. You have flashbacks within flashbacks. You have dream sequences that don't announce, announce themselves as such. Uh, you have a character who like you have a, a, a flashback and then the character herself is talking about the, uh, about the future within the flashback. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's so interesting. And so like, just kind of dizzying and it just forces you to pay attention and just everything just swirls around. Uh, and I loved it. The film really like they didn't need to make it that way. It could have been so much more straightforward and in doing, and if it were, it would have been much less interesting, but just, it just and brings all of tragic, these. I think, I think so too. Yeah. yeah. But in a way like melodrama um, is emotion, you know, like, yes, there's a mental, uh, there, there's always going to be an, an intellectual aspect, but like it's emotional first. And like the editing decisions and the structure decisions are emotion, like they're emotional decisions. Like there isn't a lot of rhyme or reason to a person's emotions. They're, they'll feel how they're going to feel and they might be able to control those emotions after the fact, but instinctively we're all going to think a certain, uh, feel a certain way about a memory or a choice we made or whatever it is. And so uh, this is a film that I feel like is the, the structure of it is meant to um, evoke the way we feel when we're thinking about our life. Um, and boy, I, I just wasn't expecting that. It's one, it's another thing. I put this in, in my review and you and you and I've talked about it before that I think that I, I have a, it, despite uh, loving classic films, I still instinctively have a certain pre uh, prejudice against them where I just assume that they are, that there's a, a certain simplicity to them and that we're more sophisticated now. Mm -hmm. Then you look at something like the sin of Norm Moran and you're like, no, like th that is not true. The same things that people feel now people felt then and yeah certainly maybe like camera techniques or visual effects are more sophisticated now but storytelling can be complex no matter when it's being made and uh the film was even after you you uh even after you talked about it last week as something you thought i would like uh i was still surprised by just how fully committed the actors and specifically the director were to telling this story this way. And, uh, I really, I really loved it. It's definitely a movie that I would recommend to, to movie fans. Cause I think it'll, it'll, it'll surprise you. I will say, and the, you know, uh, this isn't something that I usually do, but there is a, there's a scene where a guy is fighting a lion. Yeah. And, that's rough. Uh, cause like he there, I'm just going to tell her like, he's like punching the lion in the face. Now, granted that lion is going after him, but at the same time, like he's just punching it like in the face over and over. I'm like, you know, if things get too out of hand, they'll yell cut and bring that guy to safety. But they, they have no qualms at all about punching that lion in the face. Yeah. And it was, I had a, I had actually had a pretty rough time watching that scene. It's not very long, but it's long enough. And, uh, and I wasn't thrilled with that, but it's kind of have to put it down to the time, I guess. Um, but aside from that really, really great movie. The sin of Nora Moran, the sin of Nora Moran.